Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh, clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today we're having a an interesting conversation that might ruffle some feathers on aging deer with Mr. Mariah Boggess. Mariah, how are you doing? I'm doing super good. Nice talking to you guys again. Dude, awesome, man. Glad to have you back on. I'm ready to ruin everybody's day talking about aging deer. <laughs> Jacob, how are you doing? Uh, doing well. Just got back from Arkansas. Super late last night. Um, we'll talk about that at another time, but was able to find the the uh, mysterious uh, public land turkey in Arkansas, but they uh, they outsmarted us, the gobblers. There was a bunch of them. We finally got in pockets of them. But we're not talking about turkeys in this episode. We're talking about deer. Uh, Mariah, real quick, can you give yourself a little introduction on your position with the state of North Carolina, uh, and then also like a little bit of your background that kind of gives us a little little idea before we jump into this conversation talking about aging deer. Absolutely, yeah. So. Um, I'm the deer biologist for North Carolina for the uh, Wildlife Resources Commission, and I've uh, been here since 2021. Um, North Carolina actually is my home state. It's where I grew up. 
and uh, went to undergrad here. Went to to um, graduate school actually at Mississippi State. Was down in Mississippi, kind of down in y'all's neck of the woods for a couple of years. Really enjoyed hunting and everything down there. But when I graduated, I had to move on. After that, I worked up in Indiana uh, as deer biologist for about a year before I moved here. So that's that's kind of been the 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 most recent jobs I've held. Everything before that was kind of temporary field work type stuff. But all through those years, I've always been uh, a really big deer hunter. That's just my number one thing is deer hunting and, and deer sheds. Uh, my, my, my top two things that I love to do. And so that's always driven, of course, my career and, and, and what I've sought out research-wise uh, in grad school and then also career-wise. And so right now, it's, it's you know, it's, it's fun. I get to sit here and work on deer constantly uh, every day of, of uh, my work calendar and when there's nothing um, pressing at hand, I get to read about deer. I get to, you know, read the literature and stuff like that. So I always kind of trying to brush up on the, the deer research that's out there and new stuff coming out so that I can answer questions for hunters and, and anyone else I run into and, uh, you know, have, have questions about deer, biology and management. So um, always happy to have these kinds of talks. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, you mentioned going to school at Mississippi State. Uh, dude, when you were at Mississippi State, you were hell on those deer around there, man. You killed some nice bucks down in the city. It, <laughs> it was a good time. Yeah, I, I've, I've told a couple people since, you know, because I have I lived in North Carolina, Mississippi, and Indiana. And I've gone back and I've hunted Indiana. I guess I've hunted it four seasons now, and I've hunted Ohio a couple times. A couple of Midwestern states that people would say are really good for, for deer. And believe me, the hunting is good there. But it just doesn't compare to, to Mississippi. And that, you know, I'm blowing everybody's cover down there, but people sleep on the South. They really do. I mean, you know, I love Mississippi because there were so many deer and there were so many just adult, you know, like mature bucks, bucks that were three and a half years or older, um, and, and even older bucks out there. And yeah, I never saw 150 or 160, you know, inch deer, but the, the number of, large deer that were out there just you know it increased your odds <laughs> uh, i had a good time down there that's awesome man well the the what kind of spurred the uh idea for this podcast was uh you and our buddy mark turner used to do a podcast called uh, hunt the land and y'all y'all are both biologists uh and y'all covered stuff week to week that had to do with like deer biology and everything and it was a y'all y'all did a great show man and y'all did an episode one time about aging deer and the, basically the error associated with aging deer um, and just yeah. the science behind it. And it was fascinating. So I wanted to kind of rehash that conversation uh, and talk about it today because, um, you know, maybe people killed some deer last year and, and they had them aged or they're going to have them aged or, or they're just interested in aging some deer this upcoming season. And, and uh, I just thought it'd be an inter- interesting conversation um, and, and talking about how it can change based on where you are, the habitat, the actual population. Um, so I guess to kick it off, will you give us kind of a breakdown of, of how deer are normally aged now? Like you kill a buck and you have somebody like a biologist age at, what are they doing to tell you how old that deer is? So yeah, if you take your deer um, to a biologist, they're gonna wanna look at the jawbone and they're going to look at first the replacement of teeth for that deer's jawbone. It's kind of a, a process you work your way through and you start looking at how many teeth there are. And then you eventually look at where to give an estimate of age. And I can run through, do, do you want to just kind of discuss a high level? Um, yeah, we can, we can talk about it real quick. So 
Uh, when a deer is a fawn, up until it's about 12 years, well, I'm sorry, 12 months of age, um, 10 to 12 months of age, before that, it will have three, four, five, and then six teeth. When I get six teeth in its mouth, that's the full number of teeth that it will have. Just like, you know, humans, when they're young, they don't have all their teeth. They're not born with all their teeth. So uh, when you get a jawbone, the first thing you do is you count how many teeth there are. There's three premolars in front, and then there's three molars behind. And I'm talking about the teeth that are in the back of the jawbone. Um, on the front of the jawbone, you'll have incisors, and we don't look at those for, for tooth wear aging. Uh, just a note to everybody out there, if you've ever looked at a deer, uh, at the front of the front of their mouth, they only have teeth on the bottom. Because <laughs> just because your your deer doesn't have teeth on the top doesn't make it old. I've never seen a deer that had teeth like a horse. I, I don't think anyone else has teeth. <laughs> he must I've be seen fourteen years old. <laughs> yeah, it's like he didn't have any teeth left on top. Um, I just picture the scary horror that that would be a deer walking around with big old chompers in the front, uh, <laughs> bite anything it wanted. But uh, no, so uh, the bottom jaw of a deer only has has uh, incisors on the bottom. Then we look at the six teeth in the back. So Back to the aging process, you first count. If you have less than six teeth, you know that deer's a fawn. Now, there's always weird examples. We'll, we'll age deer, and if we age a couple hundred jawbones, there'll be one or two that's missing a tooth uh, or has a broken tooth, you know. And, and I've even seen jawbones that have seven teeth, just normally seven teeth, the fact that we're, they just grew an extra set of teeth. There's always exceptions, but once you've looked at one or two jawbones, you'll be able to point, you know, find those pretty easily. So. If there's less than six teeth, you know it's a fawn. Um, if you count six teeth there, then you know this deer is at least a year old. So we would classify it as a year and a half. We always, uh, you know, call deer on the half age. So they're one and a half, two and a half, and so on. That's just because they're born in early summer. They're about six months old by the first hunting season. So we always give them a half age because that's when the bulk of deer age is in the fall. Um, so when they have six teeth, then we start, then we have to start looking at tooth replacement. So if there's six teeth in the head, we count to the third tooth. That's the, the third premolar. And that is the last baby tooth to get replaced. So just like humans, deer have baby teeth and they replace them in their first year. And that third premolar will have three crests as a baby tooth. And then it gets replaced with a, a double crested tooth. And if, if you look at jawbones, you'll know the difference between a double crest and, and three crest teeth. It's pretty self-explanatory, but... If that deer has a, a three-crested uh, third premolar, we know it's a year and a half old. And if it has a double-crested third premolar, we know that it's at least two and a half years and older. And at that point, we transition to, to, to tooth wear. And I just want to point out, for sake of this argument or for sake of this conversation, the fawn age group, looking at, at tooth uh, emergence, looking at number of teeth in the mouth, and the one and a half year old age group or, or yearling age group, we can know with the highest certainty, I mean, pretty much 100%, unless, unless you're careless, you can't make mistakes, but unless you're careless with pretty much 100% certainty, we can know a deer's age by looking just at the teeth. You don't have to cut any teeth. You don't have to do anything like that um, because deer always replace those teeth in the same um, timeline, you know? And, and, and so if we're looking at deer, we can say they're falling one and a half or two and a half or older. And that's really the best way to classify with tooth wear and replacement is to say, you know, fawn one and a half or two and a half plus. But we can also look at tooth wear and we can estimate, if you will, 
how old that deer is just by looking at where. And at, at this point on in a deer's life, they're they're not losing any more teeth naturally. They're not having you know any tooth changes. Uh, so we just have to look at, at where. So you then just start looking at the the amount of wear on the enamel on each tooth, each molar back in the in the deer's jaw, and essentially just to, to quickly describe it, with every tooth worn more to a certain point, we knock it up another age class, so three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, and so on. Um, and I, I don't think it's worth going into much detail because it's really hard to, to explain the amount of wear needed on each molar to uh, classify it in an age group, but that's you know at a high level how the tooth wear and replacement aging method is used and most pretty much every agency managing deer uses that method to age uh deer in the harvest and um you know we use it here in north carolina and it's very effective for breaking deer into those age groups bond one and a half two and a half plus and we do try to make estimates into those older age groups um but you know it all depends on how you analyze the data most of the time when i pull our statewide data i'm looking you know if, if it's a if it's a question like for a population model or whatnot I'm not really breaking down into what's a five and a, how many are five and a half versus six and a half or seven and a half. At that point, it's not as important as just how many adults we have. Um, so that, that's kind of kind of how it's used. So using tooth replacement, you basically, if it's younger than two and a half, you have a very high confidence level of, of how old that deer is. But once it gets mature, basically, uh, it starts getting pretty hazy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we would classify as adult deer, basically two and a half on. It's it's just less accurate. And so that's where the currently the recommendation I mean, from the literature, if you want to have your best estimate of a deer over two and a half or three and a half, you should probably use some methamine a And and we can get into that here in a minute. But underneath that, those age groups from two and a half and younger, or two and a half really from a fawn to one and a half, tooth wear and replacement is the best way to go because um, you'll actually get more weight, more air in your estimates using cement to And there's 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 plenty of examples of that in literature looking at known age deer where uh, you can look at the teeth and know the age of the deer um, because it all, let's say it only had five teeth. There's a study where they sent out fawn jaw bones and they all came back as one and a half year olds with cement amanolite. And uh, it's like, well, you can look at the teeth. You know exactly how old that deer is because we know when deer add those those teeth. And um, you were looking at cement amanolite data, you had been off a year. So uh, there is a time and place for both methods for sure. Okay. Um, so I want to, before we move on to the, the other kind of testing, which I still don't really know how to say, um, I, I want to talk about aging a deer like you you bring your jawbone to your taxidermist and he takes a look at it and he says oh this deer was seven and a half yeah. is there any studies done or, or is there any kind of consensus on like how accurate that might actually be uh like are, are we hitting on it like 60 70 percent of the time or is it like 20 percent of the time we're we're hitting on the right year um so i i i kind of pulled some data here so that we could talk about this question and a couple others as far as looking at accuracy and, and i'll touch on that in a second um if you take your job on you know anyone can provide an age estimate and whether they're a trained biologist or not and depending on how many job bones they've looked at they'll probably you know at some point everyone becomes just as good of an expert or, or you know just as accurate as anyone else it all kind of comes down to you know if those advanced ages looking at enough job bones for an area 
that you're comfortable breaking apart each age class based on where. But we have to remember that there is, um, just like there's variability in antler growth in every age class, there's variability in where. Um, some of that is environmental. Some of that is specific to the individual. Like some, you know, some deer likely have harder teeth than others, um, or maybe they prefer different types of forages than others. At any rate, each individual is going to wear their teeth, teeth a little bit differently. So that's that's what contributes to some of this variability in wear, which eat, which then leads to error in our our estimation. So just to, to kind of set this the slate clean, just because we're estimating something wrong doesn't necessarily mean we're doing the method wrong. That's in some part due to just variability in each age class. But um, just for an example, a study that was done using known age deer in Virginia, Mississippi, uh, some years ago, back in 89, they had 98 known age deer. And they showed these jawbones to 55 biologists from across the Southeast. So people who have a lot of experience aging deer, I mean, would be very comfortable using the method and uh, the, the tooth wear and replacement technique was accurate about 62% of the time. Now, there's other projects that were similarly done that show accuracy uh, rates below 50%. There's some others that are, you know, uh, higher than 50%. But it's not, you know, it's not 90%. Um, and it, it's, it's not 10%. It's somewhere in the middle. And it kind of depends on what age classes you're looking at. With tooth wear and replacement, like I mentioned, we're really good at, at fawns and one and a half. So if you have a lot of those deer in your sample, it's going to boost up the average accuracy. And if you have a lot of deer that are that are really old, it's going to reduce that average accuracy. Um, but what we have seen consistently is that from about three and a half years on and older, with each age class being older, our, our estimates on average are more and more off. So, you know, for a seven or eight or nine-year-old deer, there's just so much variability that many years into a deer's life that it's more likely that we'll be off. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're asking about uh, accuracy rates, 50%, 60% range, but that is also assessing it based on being any years off. So if that deer was six and a half and your taxidermist said it's seven and a half, that would be counted as wrong in, you know, in that data set, but it's still within a year. If we're that looking at a deer that's that old personally, if I kill a deer and I age it, I, you know, age my, all my own deer, just out of curiosity, I'll make an estimate. And then what I always tell myself walking away is, okay, it's hopefully within a year of that, you know, I mean, one way or the other is hopefully within a year, but I don't know that deer's birthday. You would have to have been there and tag that deer when it was born to know for sure. There's really no way to ever know for sure. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how that plays out as older deer. There's just more variability and, and more air. Yeah. That, that you actually bring something up that I'm really curious about. And I, I wish there'd be a, a study done on that particular aspect of it because I'm like, if the if the buck is five and a half and the guy says he's six and a half, well, you know, he's off a year, so it's wrong. But it's like, if you were to take a year on either side and do it that way, would it be like would it be like ninety percent accurate or something? So I don't know if anybody's ever done something like that. But that I'm curious about that with the tooth wear as well as aging on the hoof too, because I know there's maybe some similar studies done on that where uh, I took a test one time Mm. that Auburn put out and it was like, go through these 50 deer and age them. And I got, it was so bad. I got like 20%. I failed so hard. But then I think what they came out with is like most people fail. Like most people aren't that great at aging on the hoof, but but they were doing it the same way. They're all known age deer. And if he's, 
three and a half and you said he's four and a half or whatever, or vice versa, you get it wrong. But it's like, well, if you're within a year, I'd be curious at like how much that accuracy or percentage goes up if you were to include like a year on either side. Right. And it, and oftentimes I've seen numbers reported in some studies and, and usually that rate is if you were to take into into account plus or minus one year and call that range accurate your accuracy would you know that would account for like 70 or 80 percent of the errors in a lot of these studies you know it's just kind of kind of a neighborhood mark so um oftentimes this isn't true even with cementum analog oftentimes when it's when it's inaccurate it's usually by a year or two you know but once you start to get up into 10 year old year and more yeah i mean you know being two years off still in the grand scheme of things you're still you know that's you're still what that's only 20 percent of the deer's age at that point that you're off it's it's less bad than if that deer was a fawn and if you aged it as three and a half you know that then you're really doing something wrong so um that i mean that, that is pretty typical of the aging process yeah, yeah I, and what, another thing that got me curious about this specifically with the tooth wear was a couple years back uh, our buddy zach shot a huge mm. buck on a on a part a parcel of public land around here and it's a place that I've been hunting my entire life. And the year before he shot this buck, now me and Zach have gone back and forth on whether or not it's the same deer, but I was standing literally almost exactly where he shot it the summer, not the summer directly before, but a year earlier than that. So uh, I filmed what I'm 99% sure is this buck. Huge buck, unmistakable, giant frame. He was standing there at 20 yards and I watched him for like five or 10 minutes. Uh, just a nice deer. And I hunted him like one or two times that fall. And uh, I, I was living in Auburn at the time. Couldn't get in there on him enough. And Zach texted me one day. He's like, hey, I'm thinking about hunting this area. Have you ever been in there? I was like, let me tell you what's living in there. And so I just handed it off, you know, to Zach. And, and he really, he started hunting that area pretty hard. And the the next year, he ended up killing that deer. Um, it was a 165-inch buck. He had the jawbone pulled, and our local biologist looked at it without knowing what deer it came from we didn't tell him we didn't show him the rack or anything we're like hey how old was this deer and he's like three and a half i was like no freaking way no yeah. way that deer was three and a half because first of all when i filmed it he looked like a mature buck assuming it's the same deer uh but so i don't know i and plus just a three and a half year old deer in that area having that big of a rack i don't i don't know but that's what got me right. curious and kind of sent me down this road i'm like Dude, there ain't no way that deer is three and a half years old. But I don't know. You're a biologist. Maybe you know better than me on that. And, you know, maybe that deer had exceptionally hard teeth you know, <laughs> to go along with this exceptionally large antler. I don't know. I mean, that's just a shot in the dark. I have seen no-nace jawbones before, you know, 20 or 30, where we know for sure because they were in a pen and, you know, we know what day they were born, the how they were. And I can tell you, there is a lot of variability. I mean, I've seen some before that were from nine and a half year old deer that day in and day out, I would age as a three or four year old. You know, that's kind of where I would be falling out looking at tooth wear, but the deer was for sure nine and a half. And then there's others, you know, that are nine and a half year old deer and every single tooth is just ground down. It's just all brown. You know, there's hardly any enamel left on top. So there's, I mean, there's just so much variability within, within each age class that, you know, at some point, this is one reason I love deer, you know, they're, they're full of exceptions. It's just like hunting them. You know, if it was as easy as, oh, if you go to the first, you know, the white, you know, white oak closest to the water in any place, you'll kill the biggest buck, you know, something stupid that was easy. It wouldn't be any fun, uh, but deer are full of exceptions and they're impossible to figure out. And in the same way, a lot of the science behind deer 
is that way because we're dealing with a wild animal. Um, you know, the genetic background, the environmental background, like we can't control any of it. So we're just observing between different populations. And each one of these studies or any population, if you look at any metric across the board, like antler growth or, um, you know, our average weight, we're always looking at the average measurement. Because that's, that's just what we have to go on. Because if you go on the average measurement, you're right 70% of the time. But then there's always the, you know, it's a, it's a bell-shaped curve. So there's always the, the far right and the far left. And it's, it's the same with, with any kind of measurement or likely with where is that, you know, most deer should wear at about this rate. And that's the method we use. But then, yeah, you have a deer like that, but maybe he was six or seven years old and he just didn't wear for whatever reason, you know, really hard teeth, whatever. He's the far left side of that curve. And he had, you know, antlers for the far right side of the curve. just exceptional one, you know. So I, I think with deer, and especially with science surrounding deer, we have to be comfortable with the unknown. And, you know, that's the bottom line. If we think we know everything, you're, you're definitely missing the boat because there's no way to know it all. And even as a biologist, we, we can't know it all. We can't look at deer and know the age for sure. Um, but I, I do want to point out, these methods, the, the, the aging methods, cementamanoli and tooth wear, are there for a reason. We developed them, biologists developed them, to, uh, to track deer populations over time so that they can look at age structure and see if age structure changed with you know, different management uh, strategies, different harvest strategies. And we use them from the aspect of an average population. So if I'm looking at the age structure of a population, I want 30, 40, or 50 deer in each age class. I, I want to be looking at a, um, you know, at a data bank with, with 200 ages or more in it, you know, say, I, I'm not so concerned about one deer. If one deer is off a year, it's no big deal to me because there's another deer that's off the year the other way and it offsets itself. That's, that's how it averages out. So from the management scenario, yes, there's air, but we're comfortable with that air. And we factor that into all of our models and, and understanding about deer because, well, we just have to live with it. And we're, we're less concerned about being able to know what every single deer's age is because it's just not important to, you know, to our management questions. Mariah, I got to ask you this. Uh, you're mentioning, you know, with those known age uh, jawbones from the pen and, you know, there was, you know, say a nine-year-old buck or a nine-year-old deer per se that, you know, if you were to age him, looked like a three or four-year-old, but then other nine-year-olds in the pen, you know, had unbelievable wear. Um, in that situation, are all those deer in those pens getting the exact same opportunity for food sources, whether it's supplemental feed or browse? I don't know because I don't know what conditions those deer were raised in, but I, I would assume they were very close to the same because there wasn't any kind of manipulative work going on over those years that I'm aware of. Um, and there, there's other examples of that too. I mean, just in some of the, the research, just where, you know, deer are aged with the same method, but they fall into different age groups when they're known age. So, but yeah, to, to your question, I don't know the answer to that one specifically. Well, that's that's one thing I'm always curious on is um, two factors. Like I've heard of, it's not from a biologist, but I've I've heard from mostly taxidermists that to see a ton of jawbones. That it seems like deer coming from different areas of the state, different areas of the country, you know, seem to have some different type of wear patterns uh, from what they've seen. Like, um, you know, even as specifically as different areas of a county quote unquote like guys have you know three four years of trail cam uh photos of a deer they kill it 
and that jaw looks so much different from another part of the county where someone has done the same thing, brought the tax numbers, and he's able to analyze and look at both of them. Um, and it kind of goes back to like, you know, how much of a factor could be, you know, when it comes to the where of the food sources that they have opportunities to, to you know, uh, get a hold of uh, with the browse and or supplemental feeding, but also um, just the hardness. And that's something I, I haven't really heard of someone talking about, like how hard a deer's teeth could be, you know, based off their genetics. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, they just have less wear eating the same food source that, you know, a similar deer in this in the same area uh, who maybe doesn't have the genetic for, you know, harder teeth um, that would show more wear uh, eating the exact same food sources, the exact same supplemental feed, whatever it is. That's something that's really interesting. That's I guess that's that one outlying factor that I don't know if there's a, any way to test that and, and figure that out ahead of time. You know, it's just one of those things that, you know, you kill the deer, you pull the jawbone, kind of like the situation with our, buck, or our buddy uh, Zach's buck where – I know that biologist, and I think he took, they took it to the tax service. And I think the tax service said the same thing, like a three, they thought three, it was three and a half years old. Um, for whatever reason, just had exceptionally hard teeth for his age. Um, because knowing where that deer came from, uh, there's not a lot of soft mass or crops or, or, uh, or any kind of browse that I would think that would like help with, uh, you know, not having as much tooth wear. Uh, just come, I mean, he came out of freaking briar thicket. I mean, just nasty hell yeah. hole. Um, and, uh, it, that is super, super interesting. And, and I guess an outlying factor that I guess people should take in consideration, especially if they do kill a buck that they're fairly certain is mature based off, you know, body size, based off, um, just everything about that deer. And for whatever reason, you know, they're getting told it's a two and a half or three and a half year old. Well, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's that outlying factor of, you know, there's that genetic hard teeth. Is there anything that's been studied on like any of those deer that, you know, for whatever reason, like say that nine year old, is there any way to test the hardness of a tooth? Um, and anything that's ever been done with that specifically? So there are ways to test, you know, mineral, mineral composition of teeth. And, and of course you could measure hardness. There's no published literature on that. Um, so th there's a couple different ways that, that there could be variation within an individual that would affect their teeth where, yeah, hardness of the teeth, which could be a result of, you know, genetics. It could be a result of, the quality of foods they had as an infant or their mother had and, and while gestating. Um, it could also be the acidity of the mouth, you know, and, and how that affects tooth breakdown. Um, at least within the dental profession and humans, you know, people who are in a lot of different people's mouths and picking at teeth and uh, not all human mouths are, are created equally either. Some people really suffer with cavities and other people don't, and that's not necessarily tied to just de good dental hygiene. And I'm not trying to get off on a on a brush your teeth tangent, but you know, I mean, you should brush your teeth. But there is also still just an individual component to it. Um, the other part is environmental, and so you know, there, there's a you know, a hypothesis out there. You hear people talk about a lot that in sandy soils, for instance, that deer wear their teeth more. And I've talked with people that I, I really respect, our experienced biologists, who say that that they can definitely see that variation even within a county or farther um, between sandy soils and non-sandy soils. And, that, you know, maybe that's tied to a deer. You know, maybe there's there's sand getting onto the underside of leaves. You've ever seen that, of course, after a rainstorm, it's making, you know, it's, that's making its way into their forage and that's grinding their teeth more. Um, there's no science out there published to, to really say that's happening. So it, it's nothing more than just, you know, 
uh, a hypothesis now that could definitely be part of it. Um, there's also research to show that the quality of forage available to a deer determines how much that deer eats. And so if they have really high quality food available to them, this nutritiously dense, they won't have to consume as much food. And, and that's been shown in research that uh, consumption rate or just the amount of food being intake by being intake by deer is tied to how nutritiously dense that food is. So you would take that another step further. If a deer is chewing more, well, we can hypothesize that it's probably wearing more too. That's one way forage, and not necessarily forage hardness, but forage nutritional quality could affect tooth wear. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different hy- you know, hypotheses out there, and there's probably merit to all of them, honestly. Uh, but there's no, there's no substantial scientific backing to any of them, you know, to the best of my knowledge. And there's probably too many factors, to be fair, that affect one individual to another, even within a small population. But across, you know, across populations, some of those environmental ones could be at play. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll mention a study here, and I want to, I want to talk about a study when we get into semantic analog here in a minute. But this was a manipulative study back in the '90s in uh, George Reserve Deer Herd, which is was a high fence research facility in Michigan, where some of the the greatest deer research, early deer research, came out to describe like population de- um, density dependence and stuff on on, on uh, uh, individuals' health and size and, and even reproductive output. So they were constantly manipulating how many deer were in this enclosure from very few deer and and as little over a thousand acres to to hundreds of deer within this this small enclosure. And they noted that when they had, you know, a hundred deer or so, and then they whittled that deer population down to like 10 deer, that the amount of tooth wear on those deer's teeth over those years started to decline. As in, in future years, when there's fewer deer, they weren't wearing their teeth near as much. And that's probably going back to, you know, what I, what I talked about a minute ago to where there's probably better forage available to each individual because they weren't competing with as many deer, which led to having to consume less food, therefore chew less and, and, and then wear their teeth less. That's connecting a lot of dots, but there, there's probably something to that. Interesting. I, ha- I have a question that is off topic but i've got to ask later in this episode i just cannot i I can't forget it but it has to do with mining and minerals but uh well i'm going to come back to that in a little bit andrew do you have any other questions specifically on the the tooth wear no no so let's talk about this other way that you know especially i guess more recently different organizations i know there's a couple businesses out there that do this cross cut analyze uh, of the tooth and, and kind of, I don't know if it's like the rings on the tooth or whatever. And, and remind us again, what is the name of this other, this other method for aging deer? That's uh, I guess a little more detailed compared to just the tooth wear patterns. It's called cementum analy. And essentially it's just taking a cross section of the root of the, the front incisor from the deer. And so, um, to, to pull it incisor correctly, you either need a fresh deer jaw. If you do, you can kind of, I'll take a screwdriver or something and slide down along the root all around that tooth. And then I'll take pliers and gently pull it out. You can't break the root off is, is, is why I'm saying that. Um, you know, if you get the, the front incisor extends maybe an eighth of an inch out of the deer's gum line, if it extends an eighth of an inch, the root is down a quarter inch or more. So it's real long and you, you try to get it all out of there. And then you send it into the lab. Um, and the, the main lab that does most of that work is Matson's Laboratory in Montana. They've been in the game for 
a long time and they do most of the aging work for all of the wildlife agencies out there that are doing cementum analyze. Um, a lot of the big canids like like black bear or uh, felids, you know, like mountain lions and bobcats and whatnot. Um, and even some of the fur bears, the, the semantic analyte technique, it has really high accuracy and it's used, it's used off across a lot of different animals. Um, and, and Matson's lab, again, is, is really the go-to. That's the one that usually does it. There's some newer labs, um, Deer Age, I think DeerH.com or something like that is a newer one that does that. And I, I don't know how long they've, they've done it, but they're doing the same technique. It's, it's a cross-section of the incisor. They then stain the root, and there's these annualized, what they call them, essentially kind of rings uh, that are laid down within that deer's tooth, and they're laid down during stress periods. And so as long as an animal experiences one stress period every year, or those stress periods occur at, at, at a rate that they know, you know, over time, it could be one or two per year, as long as they know how many it is, they can count those stress rings. And they can estimate the, the animal's age. And like I said, they can do that with a, with a lot of different animals with really high accuracy. Um, and it's something that, of course, there's, you know, been an application of white-tailed deer ever since um, with cementum analyte. And, and, I, and, you know, right from the beginning, some of the research on cementum analyte has pointed out that it's most accurate at northern latitudes. And we can get into that here in a minute, kind of into the nuts and bolts of that. But, um, you know, a lot of the work that's been done on it it has been done at northern latitudes there are some studies from down south that we can talk about that have a little bit lower accuracy but that's the that's the method and so um agencies that that do this you know they might send off a few hundred teeth or so and they'll all get sent to the laboratory and get get ages sent back and, but as a hunter you can you can send them in as well Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls. But they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call. And you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring. 
especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. So I'm assuming at the northern latitudes, it, it's probably more accurate because they have a harsh winter they have to contend with every year. Yeah, so that's the uh, that's that's the stress period that is really easy to anticipate over time, and uh, especially in areas you know like in, in an arid environment like say the, the the American West where we have these really distinct growing seasons, short growing seasons, long winters. The tail end of winter would be that stress period, and it happens year in and year out. It, it's really predictable. In the South, it's less so. Um, and really the stress period for deer in the South is the, is the summer, the end of summer is the most stressful period for them. And so that likely is, you know, that's part of the reason there's, there's a lack of accuracy in the South or at least variable accuracy. Um, but I, I didn't want to loop back. So that, that study that I mentioned that the George Reserve deer herd, and I talked about tooth wear, the amount of tooth wear declined when they, when they decreased the amount of deer in the pen. Well, they also looked at cementum analyte. And so when they had about 100 deer in this 1,000 acres or more, there was um, very obvious analyte in the teeth that they were taking from those deer, and they could make uh, relatively um, confident estimates on the deer's age. And so that's one thing. Like if you send them a tooth to, to Matson's or, or another lab, they will provide you with a grade for how confident they are in estimating the animal's age. And uh, so the, these annuli were very obvious in the teeth in these deer from the Georgia's or deer herd. And then they decreased the population to about 10 individuals in this pen. And they said it, it, incrementally, as they were whittling down that population, that the annuli in the years following got more and more obscure to the point where they weren't even laying down annuli annually. And this is in Michigan. So, you know, we talk about the, the winter stress period. I mean, that, those deer were subject to winter, but it wasn't stressful to them or nearly as stressful to them anymore because there was ample food for them because of the lack of deer. And so, um, you know, I mean, that, that's a great example of deer density dependence and, and carrying capacity and that those deer were exhibiting these, these stress rings just because there were so many other animals around them, not necessarily even at a, at a density that was abnormally high for the area, but when they, they cut it down to a 10th of the density, the deer were no, no longer stressed, you know, hardly even in winter. And they didn't lay down those those annuli. Then they let that population rebound, and they started laying down annuli again in the years afterward when there was there was a higher density. So it was completely tied to stress. And so you know that that stress has to occur, and it has to occur at a rate that can be um, you know monitored and, and and used to back the deer that end up in the lab. Interesting. Okay, uh, in the south. Is does a stressor always have to do with food? Essentially, uh, it sounds like up north it's it's a stressor because there's a lot of deer, and then at the end of winter there's like nothing left, and and they all are kind of hungry for a while. Down here, uh, there I mean, there's greenery down here, three sixty five. You know, we're, we're never like completely okay. you know desolate or whatever. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious, does it always have to do with food? And then also, what are the accuracy rates that we're talking about for the north versus the south here? Yeah, so <clears throat> there's no research that really is parsing out the different types of stress and how that is affecting annuli. However, I mean, we, we know there are social stresses on deer, and that's the other thing that jumps out to me besides just food stress is that you can have a high deer density, and maybe those deer are being subsidized with um, food from humans or 
whatnot and they have plenty of food, but they could still be stressed just because there's so many individuals and there's stress in between those individuals, just inherently by there being so many animals competing and interact with one another. Um, I can't think of the study off the top of my head or exactly what they were looking at, but there has been research to show that just social stress between deer, like in pens where they're in really high deer densities, but they're getting fed, you know, at limits of all the food they could want, high quality, there still are markers for stress within those deer. They're exhibiting markers for stress. So that could be, um, that could be another form of stress. But I will say this in, in the South, while we do have food throughout the year, there's a really big difference between high quality food and low quality food. And, and in summer, and this is why the stress, the late summer stress period is important in deer is that, they, I mean, you walk around the woods in Southeast in August and September, I mean, everything is green. There is, there is forage everywhere. But the issue, the reason it's, it's stressful for deer is that, well, for number one, they have high nutritional demands during that time of year. So the bar is set high, but the, the quality of forage is just, it's decreasing sharply then because all of the plants that were growing early in the season are now, they're lignifying, they're, 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 they're very fibrous, they're, um, they're beginning to get ready to die for winter. And so there's just not high quality food. And so like where I'm at here in Eastern North Carolina, um, say hunting in December, if I'm hunting in Longleaf Pond, I can look as far as, as I want underneath the understory and there's green, it'll be gallberry and yapon and, and um, there might be some ferns and whatnot. And deer will eat those. And I mean, I, you know, I've, I've killed deer and seen that they were eating that, but it's not necessarily high quality food. Now, will it sustain deer? Absolutely. Um, it's not like deer starving to death in the South during winter. Um, that, that doesn't really happen, but that doesn't mean that they're not getting stressed if, if there's not high quality food for them. So that could definitely be um, one of the stress periods, you know, if, if there's just not good food for them. Um, and as far as, you know, touched on the point of accuracy rates between the, the North and the South, there's a handful of studies that have been done on cement and analyte, and I'm just going to go through a couple of them here kind of touching on, on accuracy rates. There's one that was looking at mule deer and elk and, and white-tailed deer in Montana and um, looking at, at, at deer they knew the age of. And, and white-tailed deer, they estimated the age accurate about 85% of the time. And that, um, just in, in kind of a brief literature search uh, here this morning, that, that's the highest rate for white-tailed deer cemented annual I, I could find is 85%. And that one is actually cited quite often as the, the accurate, or, you know, as this is the accuracy rate for deer. Um, but again, that was in Montana. You know, there's the very, just the, the very, uh, you know, defined stress period for deer in winter in Montana. Uh, a, a recent study that was done in Iowa, they looked at um, 473 deer. This was Iowa DNR. They, they pulled incisors from deer. 473, and they sent them off both incisors from the front of the deer. So they, these are called like a paired study. Um, so they were sending number one and number two. The lab doesn't know this. So the lab just sends back their age estimate like they would for any other customer. And then they look at the disparity between those two to, to try to get an idea of, of, of where there might be inaccuracies or, you know, whether it's inaccuracies in the method or again, variation in individuals that's causing these different, these different ages. And, and that study between those 473 deer, uh, about 19% of those were returned, those paired samples were returned with different ages. 
And, you know, they were almost all entirely only one year off. They're, they're mostly one year off. So you're still within one year, assuming that one of those is the correct age. But again, I mean, that, that kind of speaks to there being variation. I mean, even in Iowa, where I would call that a pretty northern latitude, there, there's a lot of winter stress up there um, just because of the harshness of winter. There's still variation even between incisors sitting right next to each other and the annuli that they display and being able to read those. Uh, and another study, and this is much older, um, unpublished data from Arkansas, they looked at 34 known aged deer. And in that study, the accuracy rate was 31%. Uh, with cemented manualine and tooth burn replacement was around 77% in that, in that, um, in that study. And then of course this, you know, this is, this is more just anecdotal. I'm taking little spots from here and there across the board. And then there was this other one. I mentioned this earlier. This is, is, is from Mississippi where they sent in, in their sample, there was five fawns and they all came back as being yearlings. And in that same, in that same study, they also sent in um, yearlings and only 17% of those were returned cement as yearlings. And again, they, they, they were getting overaged, I believe, in that instance. And um, on those study sites, it one of the conclusions was there must be another annual uh, contribution to these annuals. So in other words, there's another stress period contributing on this site in those, those teeth, which is making the cement analyte method inaccurate compared to tooth brain replacement. So you can extrapolate that down into other ages past one and a half and so on. And you would have inaccurate uh, estimates of the deer's age. So there's still, I believe that, that there still is a lack of a really good study, quantitative study with known aged deer at various latitudes from the far south to the north. I would love to see a study from you know, Florida, mid-south, midwest, and then maybe New England or the, the far, the, the, the northern Midwest and look at accuracy rates. Uh, we don't have that right now. We just have these few known HDR studies around. And then there's a couple that compare cement to manualite or tooth bearing replacement. But the issue with those is you don't know what the true age is. You're just comparing two methods that are both flawed. Um, but anyway, that, that kind of answers the question. Is there is as, as you know evidence to, to say accuracy rates are, are lower in the South. I mean, they might be half of that of what they're in the North. Um, but even in northern sites, it's going to depend on what that stress period is, and likewise in the south. Would also another stress period be if there's any um, significant droughts in any regions of the country? Would that also be classified right. as one of the stressors? Absolutely. And that would be a good example of a, you know, a, an, an annual eye that could be laid down in a tooth one year and no others. It would just be kind of an anomaly. Is that one of those things that could also throw off that uh, age prediction unless it was like known ahead of time? Like, hey, this deer came from air. There was a significant drought two years ago or something like that. I mean, is that something that kind of takes they take into consideration if they have that kind of data point? It, it could definitely throw off the age estimation. And yeah, I mean, if you were dealing with a large enough sample size, you would start to notice especially if it was known age year and you were doing one of these studies, you would begin to notice very early that your all of your ages are, you know, on average one year off. And then you could calibrate for that. The issue is knowing that, you know, and, and of course, knowing how much of a, how big of a stress does it have to be to lay down an annual eye? Um, you know, that, that's the other unknown. And so, again, we're dealing with a wild animal and there's so many other factors out there in the environment, they can, they can stress them. I mean, you know, even a, a, an individual injury 
say, you know, a deer breaking its leg or, or who knows what could theoretically contribute to a stress ring. Um, so there's, you know, and, and not because it's a bad method. It's just because we're studying a wild animal in a very, um, is in an environment that has full of that's full of variables. It's just never going to be hundred percent accurate. Okay, that no, that makes perfect sense, and that's a good point about the drought too. Um, I was also wondering, which you kind of just answered this, but I was I was also wondering if they take uh, like site specific environmental factors into consideration because that i guess that would be a stressor down here because it seems like every two or three years like we get a pretty bad drought at that very end of summer time frame um yeah and i like i've talked about on here before that when i shot my first uh archery deer it was during a drought and i was hunting a watering hole in a creek like because the mm-hmm. creeks even creeks that run dry or, uh, or run all year were running dry and so i was finding you know little pools here and there and and uh they were coming to them like yeah. a freaking african watering hole like you see guys hunting on safaris so i could see how that that would definitely be a big stressor um w- yeah yeah for sure I mean, what are some of your takeaways from this like as a biologist but but also as a deer hunter you know if if you're killing a deer and you're very curious about how old he is, let's say you shoot a mature buck, I mean, what is your process like when you're trying to figure out that deer? like what is your thought process like like i'm I'm gonna look at this and then that, and then I'm just gonna accept that it's probably about this accurate yeah, um you know on average, so across where I hunt on in the southeast. I have not yet sent in a deer for cement and antlion from the southeast. And that's just because I, I've read enough of these reports that I wouldn't have that much confidence in, in, in what it told me. Not that it's going to be numerous years off, it's probably within a year or two, but I feel like I, I'm probably that close with tooth wear and replacement and it's not worth the money to me. I've sent in teeth from um, out west, you know, uh, an elk a few years ago a pronghorn but those were from areas where there was there was definitely a winter stress period and just knowing the environment you know i I felt more confident in what they would tell me um if i were to kill you know deer in say indiana uh you know kentucky i don't know somewhere somewhere we're at the mason dixon line and on up or you know even even down into the midwest like even down into missouri say um, you know, down there, the, the, the seasons are more defined than here on the East Coast. If I were to kill a deer there and I want to know the age, I would probably age it with, with my tooth wear and replacement first. If the deer ages as two and a half or three, I'm probably not going to be too concerned past that because, uh, again, on average, tooth wear and replacement is more accurate at young ages and similar to manalyze more accurate in older ages. But if I, you know, at that point, if the deer is four and a half, five and a half or older in tooth wear and replacement, I don't have that much act, uh, that much confidence in tooth wear and replacement past, you know, two or three, then I'm going to be real curious. I would send in that tooth uh, for cement to manualize. And then I would probably take the age that I had from tooth wear and replacement, the one from cement, cement to manualize, and just tell myself it's probably within that range. And I'm, I'm not going to know the, the, exact, the exact age for sure. And I know since, I mean, that, you know, that answer is really frustrating. Everyone, I mean, we want an answer to everything, right? We, we want to know how, I want to know how old my deer is, darn it, right? I, I mean, I killed this big buck, right? I want to, and I do too, but, you know, it's, uh, all we have is the estimate. And that's just kind of, you know, what we have to run on. So for me personally, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about getting a deer from, from the deep south 
age with cemented manili. If I had some beer from elsewhere, and I, you know, there's a minimum, there's a minimum uh, sample count. You know, if I was trying to get over that minimum, I might throw it in there just for uh, for curiosity's sake. But beyond that, I, I wouldn't be super concerned. You know, killing a deer in Mississippi, say, to get an age with cemented manili. There's just there's just too many variables. I would have. Yeah, and I do this myself. I, I age a lot of deer professionally. I age my deer myself, but I always send it to other people who also have a lot of experience aging deer because everyone sees things differently. And uh, there's nothing to say that just because I've aged deer, you know, that I'm an expert and know 100% of the deer I look at. So I look at, I'll send it to someone else. Now, also, by the way, I found that I have a lot of bias with the deer I kill, <laughs> believe it or not. So I'll send it to someone else and I'll get a different age. I'm like, okay, they're probably more right. You know, they said it's a year younger than what I said. Um, that, that's kind of, you know, I, I try to just kind of average it out in my head. You know, I, I'll get several different age estimates, average it out. And that's probably as close as we're going to get to the, to the actual age. Also, one other thing, when you're talking about the, uh, uh, the analy, uh, I, probably just, I just botched <laughs> that so bad, but with the, uh, the cross cut and you're looking at, you know, these stressor points. Uh, so I've taken two deer in Iowa. I saved the jawbone from my last one from this past season. Uh, did you mention that like, it has to be a fresh tooth as in like, you need to send it off right when you kill it, or can it be from a jawbone from, you know, that's kind of dried out at this point? It can be from a dried out. You'll just want to, because that, root will break very easily you'll just want to i would boil it personally or soak it in water for a few days but if you boil it for an hour or two that'll soften up that tissue and that bone enough that you can get the root out um you know in a fresh one you don't have to do that but yeah uh being aged you know a couple years old dried out that won't affect that and you know from iowa i I would think you would get a pretty close uh to accurate age estimate especially if that deer's over three or four that that's what i would bank on if i were you know in that in that kind of place yeah absolutely yeah his last one i shot just it dude this i've never seen a deer that had like this grave face and he just looked old and worn out and he was uh that he had a broken front left shoulder and and leg more than likely probably got hit by a car and uh yeah. and i'm i'm very interested in kind of saying that. i've still got the jawbone in the back of my truck um and, and thought about that and also the other thing i was gonna ask about with that study like you have to pull that tooth and that root out you can't take a cross cut section with like a saw and send like that whole like little section of jawbone with the tooth intact to them they're gonna want just the tooth and the root uh i'd have to look back at their directions i'm pretty sure they want just the tooth okay um I can't say the other laboratories, they, they might take the, the end and do the extraction for you. And I'll be honest. I mean, I, you know, the first one I did, I broke that tooth right in half. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I got impatient. And I learned my lesson. So yeah. Um, I would say just take it real slow and you, you'll, you'll be able to lift it out of there. You just, it just takes a little time, slide a screwdriver down the front of it to kind of loosen that root, uh, wiggle it back and forth and pull it out. Um, also what I'll do is I'll take a knife and I'll slice that knife down into the bone on either side of the tooth as far down as I can, almost trying to cut that, the jawbone, you know, just straight down. If you're to follow that tooth line down, you're cutting it right down along the roots. That really helps loosen that, that tooth up. Um, I don't think they'll take the front though. I think they want just that tooth. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. 
Uh, Andrew, do you have any other questions? No, I'm, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to throw this for a loop real quick. Are you you doing your little mining question? Yeah. Right? So yeah, I've had this theory for a while, uh, and again, this is very much a theory that we probably won't be able to get an answer uh, accurately from you. But I'm just curious. So I was just in Southern West Virginia and drove through Western Kentucky, and of course, those areas have a tremendous amount of coal mining. Okay. And yeah. with the extraction, especially from the surface mining, you know, the extraction of all these minerals, the coal and everything, and everything kind of get uplifted. Also, these are areas that produce absolutely massive deer, um, you know, in both areas of uh, these states. Um, one thing to do with southern West Virginia is because it's a boat-only uh, bow only county, so there's four counties down there, which, of course, is going to tremendously help deer population because it's a lot harder to kill. Has there been any studies with mining, especially surface mining, extracting minerals and bringing minerals to the surface to potentially do anything for antler growth for deer that live in and around those areas, eating forage from in and around those areas? No research that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my biologist answer would be that it's probably, it, I, I think it is 100% habitat related, but I think it's more related to just there being open ground for those deer for this providing of good forage. I mean, that's why Eastern Kentucky, um, Southwestern Virginia, Southern West Virginia, that around the, uh, the strip mines that have been reclaimed, that's where you find the elk. Like that's where the successful elk reintroductions, East Tennessee is an example. They're all centered around those areas. And it, you know, that even the, the animals that are there, they could walk away and, and, and a few do, but most of them are, they, they stay around those open strip lines. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's related to the forage that has regrown there um, just because they went into close canopy forest and opened it up. And now there's a bunch of uh, forbs available to those animals. And it's, pro it's probably more related to that um, for the deer, you know, in those areas, uh, it, you know, there could be some minerals that have been unsurfaced due to mining. Um, you know, for the most part, when I, if we're talking about high quality forage, let's say common ragweed or, um, you know, we'll, we'll use common ragweed or partridge pea or just any of these you know, real common, widely spread weeds that deer eat, um, you know, that they provide all of the nutrition that the animal needs, even on a poor site. What's usually the limiting factor is availability of those forbs. And kind of, you know, looping back to what I mentioned about the George Reserve and when they reduced the deer, the deer lost the stress rings completely, even in Michigan. They didn't have to, uh, you know, they didn't have to, they didn't put any minerals out. They didn't put any sub, you know, any subsidized food out for those animals. They just reduced the number of mouths feeding out there, which allowed more high quality forage for each deer. And I would argue, I'm sure that when there was a hundred deer in those pens, they weren't starving. They were probably, they were, they were, you know, probably well fed. They had all the food they needed, but they weren't necessarily eating all of the most highly nutritious food that they, they could get. And you know, similar on the, the coastal plain down where I'm at, there is a little, there's a very limited amount of those types of forbs down here for deer. There's a whole lot of kind of crappy shrubs that they can eat. And so, you know, just getting more high quality forage out there usually is, is the name of the game and increase the antler growth. But um, I mean, I can't say whether or not that happens a little bit. But, but more than likely, it's just because the the open, expansive landscape allowing for those forbs to grow versus a closed canopy forest, um, and and kind of like what that would provide. So again, more high quality forage, 
uh, not necessarily to do with anything of minerals, but it's more high quality uh, habitat that would allow those forbs to grow in order for those deer and, of course, elk and everything to feed on them, uh, but specifically whitetails. Um, is that kind of like an advantage of being able, and again, not to get too sidetracked here, of having more open ground for those forbs to uh, really, you know, express their full potential and really, you know, cover the landscape versus, you know, areas that's going to have a lot more just kind of closed canopy cover? Because a lot of people look at, you know, I think hardwoods, and this is, m- m- might be for another episode maybe to do with you, you know, hard mass is such like a, a, a great food source during a certain time of the year, but at other times of the year, it's not really, it's not really providing them anything, um, versus yeah. open landscapes, the open habitat that could provide more of those forbs throughout, you know, other parts of the season, even later in the season being a, a, a higher quality habitat food source for them that, uh, maybe we don't have as much around unless you go in very specific areas of the country where they have a lot more open landscape, um, you know, in those kind of areas. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I were, if I were describing the ideal property for a deer, it would be probably 90% open. And, you know, a lot of that would just be wherever you were, redneck prairie, it it would be just the native, native plants. You'd have to manage it to, to keep it that way, but native plants, which are mostly weeds, what we call weeds, broadleaf plants growing so that deer can eat them. Uh, but I mean, you do, you know, a forest component is important for deer, as you mentioned, uh, mass in the fall is important for deer, but it's a very short lived uh, food and it doesn't happen every year. So, you know, to have 95% of your landscape in a cover type being oaks that only produce a high quality food for a month, every three years, just doesn't make sense. So it'd be, you know, it's a lot more advantageous from a deer perspective to have the bulk of your landscape being those foods that the deer eat most months out of the year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, having open ground it is is key for having a, a high uh, carrying capacity for deer and, and therefore providing a lot of food for them. But more so than just having open ground, I mean, if you have hay pasture, it's not going to be that great. If it's all just soybeans or all just corn, it's not going to be that great. Corn and soybeans is great. But, you know, deer are only going to eat that during certain times of year. They, they need a mixture of everything. So uh, you also need that that component of just open native landscape. And so, um, you know, when you look at some of the areas that grow the biggest deer, they have they have that component and they're kind of known for it. I mean, you think about uh, Kansas, you know, everyone wants to go to Kansas. Well, what's a lot of Kansas? It's remnant prairie. Uh, you know, even some of, you know, I've been there, some of their, their pastures that have they run a cattle on still have a lot of remnant prairie within them. They have a lot of those native boards uh, available to deer, but they also have ag. They also have a little bit of, of hardwoods and what, you know, and what else. And so, um, yeah, that's just an example. But even if we look at say Illinois, if you're in an area of Illinois, like Northern Illinois, there's big deer, but there's a whole lot, there's a lot less deer in areas of the Midwest that are 95 plus percent agriculture. Um, same with Indiana, you know, it's when you get in the the golden triangle or whatever they call it in, in Illinois or in any of these Midwestern states, there's an area that's the, the fertile crescent for growing big bucks. And almost always, if you look at the landscape there, yes, there's still ag, but it's not it's not nearly the amount of landscape it is in the rest of the state. And in those areas, it's a matrix of forests. There's some open ground and there's agriculture. And the driftless area of Wisconsin is a great example. That's, you know, Buffalo County, the, the biggest Boone and Crockett County. 
it's all dairy land up there. The side hills are forest. The tops and the bottoms are cultivated. And it's not just all corn. They, because it's dairy, they're, they're growing alfalfa. They're growing, and they grow it in strips, you know, alfalfa, beans, wheat, everything. It's just, a, it's a matrix of a whole lot of different types of cover. So, um, you know, that's really the biggest key is just variety. And anywhere where you end up with just a monoculture of one cover type everywhere, even if it's corn, it's just not as good as having a variety of everything, you know. So, I mean, deer, deer, deer love the spice of life. That's just, you know, variety. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Mariah, I've already got another topic I want to do a podcast with you. And actually may have our buddy uh, Kyle Leibarger sit on as well, uh, talking about some more open ground Um and just that prairie remnant, because that is kind of fascinating when you go to areas like that and, you know, how everything thrives in those areas. But, you know, a lot of people don't like the whole idea of cutting timber because uh, they associate whitetails with timber. Uh, but that's not necessarily yeah. the case. So uh, very interesting discussion. But, uh, Mariah, is there anything else on, uh, you know, aging, any, any kind of um, things that we've missed or haven't discussed upon, uh, whether it's from any kind of studies or anything like that, that'd be worth mentioning. Or, of course, just your overall thoughts and opinions on this topic to kind of round it up this episode. No, I think we hit all the hype points. I, I would just sum it up as that, uh, you know, understand there's air in it, and it's something we all have to get used to. I think as scientists, we're really used to, you know, by, by de facto, when we get a question, the answer is always it depends. And, you know, we, we average everything out, and the answer is the average. But on both ends of the average, there's these exceptions, and the, the natural world is full of exceptions. So as scientists, I think we're pretty used to the idea that, oh, we're wrong part of the time. The, the goal is to be right most of the time and have an average that is, is more or less correct. And, you know, understand that these aging methods, for the most part, they were developed for applications in wildlife management, where we're dealing with, with sample sizes of hundreds to thousands of deer, you know, we'll age th this past year alone over 10,000 deer, you know, something like that across the state. That's all going into a data set, you know, over time, if one deer's miss age here and there, that doesn't really mess up that data set because we have, we know there's air in it. We, we factor that in. Um, so that these aging methods, you know, that, that's where they're best suited. They're best suited for large data sets and understanding how a population changes over time. And they work well for that. You know, that's their intended purpose. As hunters, we have adapted them to our own, you know, for our own uses and our own questions. Nothing wrong with that. I'm a hunter and I love to, to try to get an idea of the age of my deer. Um, you know, when I kill one, but when I kill a deer, that's the sample size of one. And, you know, if, if we're wrong half of the time, that doesn't make me feel that great about the answer I get on it. But I think, uh, you know, if you kill a deer and it gets aged by a biologist or so on, or, or someone with a lot of experience, say they say it's four or five or whatnot, just, you know, uh, that's, that's the best answer you're probably going to get. And just know that it's probably within one or one year plus or minus of that. And, um, and that's, that's really all we should, you know, all we really need to know, um, you know, that kind of, kind of the end. Of it. There's, there's really no silver bullet for knowing the deer's age. There's, there is some work going on, you know, someday there's some genetic methods we might be able to, to dig into a part of the deer genome, like where, where we can actually look into the genetic structure of, from an animal and estimate its age. There's promise to that from other animals and adapting it to deer. But as of right now, there's no silver bullet. And so, um, you know, as a deer hunter, it's a little frustrating to me, but um, I don't know. Deer, deer are full of unknowns and answers we'll never have. So that's kind of the fun part at the end of the day. And, um, you know, getting a, an age estimate, 
I, I still keep track of all of them, and I just know they might, might a couple of them are probably off for a while. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Brian, it's always fun talking deer with you, dude. This has been a super interesting conversation. Uh, is there a place where people can kind of follow along with you? Uh, anything kind of new going on with you in the deer woods or deer research or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't post that much stuff anymore, but uh, my Instagram is uh, Mariah Biologist. And that's pretty much the only place I'll post something. But, you know, if I'm out deer hunting or whatever, that's uh, that's what gets me going. So deer hunting and shed hunting. Um, yeah, follow along with me there. And uh, I'm looking forward to another fall in the deer woods. We're only four months away now, so it's it's getting close. Yeah, man, absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on, dude, and, uh, and we'll talk to you later. Sounds good, guys. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no-brainer. You gotta be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.